Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Time now for a segment called I Wish I Made That, where we invite some of our favorites in pop culture to dive deep into a work of art they didn't make, but really wish they did. On deck is John Darnielle. He's a writer. His 2014 debut novel, Wolf in White Van, was nominated for a National Book Award. Along with fiction, he also writes a column for Decibel Magazine. His third novel is out now. It's called Devil House. It's an epic story that touches on the true crime fad of today, the satanic panic of the 1980s, and a spooky home in Milpitas, California. You might also know John Darnell for his other gig, singer, songwriter, and frontman of the Mountain Goats. I broke free. The Mountain Goats are a folk rock band John started all by himself back in the early 90s. Just him and a tape recorder. Since then, they've gained a few members and put out over two dozen albums, including last year's Dark in Here. Signal drawn upon the bricks of a clinic for the dispossessed. When we asked John to pick something he wishes he'd made, he sent us a list first. It said, Patrick O'Rednick's book, Europeana, the album The Fallen King by Italian power metal band Frozen Crown, Gary Gaetti's first... (laughs) Gary Gaetti's, that's the third baseman for the Minnesota Twins, first and last appearance as a relief pitcher for the Cubs in 1999, or Speak and Spell, the debut album by new wave legends Depeche Mode. Eventually, we got him to narrow it down to one, and he chose the last one. We'll let John explain why. So my name is John Darnell, and one thing among many things I wish I'd made is Depeche Mode's premiere album, Speak and Spell. So the segment's called I I Wish I Made That. And one reason I wish that I was the guy who made the Depeche Mode debut is how brave it is, you know, how singular it was to make a record like this uh, when it came out. It doesn't sound that way in retrospect. There's a lot of stuff that sounds like it, but there was not that. So Speak and Spell is the first Depeche Mode album, and it's if you are an 80s music student or if you were there saying it's it's the one that has Vince Clark on it tells you what you need to know about this album, right? Vince Clark was in a band called Yaz in the UK or Yazoo in the US. Alison Moyet was the singer, and they did very pure techno pop songs. He was the 
if not the pioneer of Depeche Mode, he was absolutely the guy writing all the songs on the first album. It was kind of his vision, although I don't think it was his vision in a sense that like he thought, I will form a band and, and implement my vision. I think they got together, and he was the guy who could write songs, so he wrote songs right, and uh, wrote the entire album. He was in the band. He was a founding member. He's in all the early videos. I think he actually quit on the last night of their only UK tour as a band. I think that's right. I've seen a documentary about somebody. He quit just as they were getting some headway. Like, they'd gotten the contract to make the record. And, you know, they were, like a lot of bands in the late 70s, early 80s, it was sort of a lark. It was some guys getting together and maybe make something happen. And But but the songs are hits, right? They, some of these songs, like, uh, like Just Can't Get Enough, are like incontestable hooks, right? I just can't get enough. I just can't get enough So he didn't really feel it. He <laughs> was like, I got some other things I want to be doing. So he bailed. And uh, and so they are left to figure out how to be a band because they have a record contract. They have everything else, except they don't have their songwriter anymore. This evening I have with me Vince Clark, the quiet, talented man behind the keyboards of Depeche Mode, Yazoo, The Assembly, and most currently, Erasure. Now, Vince, that's quite a lot of bands to have been involved in in 10 years. You're quite a restless chap. Um, well, I was restless, you know. I was born under the sign of cancer, which makes me indecisive. All right. But um, now I think I've mellowed out, you know. Yeah. I'm quite settled in the band I'm in. So you started off with Depeche Mode in Basildon, and um, you wrote three hits for them. You had an album went into the top ten, and then you left the band. Why did you, why, when it was riding on a sort of tide of success, why did you peel off? Um, well, at the time, I just felt that the band wasn't going in the direction that I'd have chosen to go in, you know. So Martin Gore uh, has to step up and become the songwriter. For better or worse, I would say, because I, I don't think they would have reached the level of success, certainly that they got in Southern California and probably globally, if uh, if Martin Gore hadn't been forced to say, okay, well, somebody has to do this. You know? So, But the place he takes it, it takes him a while to get there. The album after this one, you hear the sound of a band with no direction, right? They don't know what to do, but they have the hardware, right? And I'm very fascinated by that. I mean, it's really, narratively, it's, it's extremely fascinating. And then it must feel to them, I would imagine to this day, like a sort of a Cinderella story. Like, not only did we recover from that, we got so big, Vince could never have guessed at it, you know? So the first album is a synth-pop record. Right? Synth-pop, I think, as a term, isn't as narrow as it was then, right? Uh, but the Human League are a synth-pop band, right? Depeche Mode is maybe possibly the first synth-rock band. I don't know who the first one was to say, besides Kraftwerk, who are laying the ground for this but are not pop, right? Really, Vince Clark is one of the first guys to go, we can take this technology, we don't need a drummer, right? We're going to do it with the Lin or the Oberheim or whatever, uh, and it'll all be sequenced. And and it's remarkable to see them performing in early clips from this era because you can tell nobody really... You know, people have lip synced without drummers and stuff, but you can, they're trying to sort of sell this image of a band where everybody is behind a keyboard, right? To see this as unusual, you really have to divest yourself of the trappings of the modern world because it's now very normal to see a rock band who have laptops on stage.
So in Depeche Mode had a, a very charismatic lead guy in Dave Gahan. Uh, one of the first things an ex-girlfriend told me about him, because I was very anti-Depeche Mode in high school. I was like, I don't care about this kind of music. And she said, oh yeah, but he's an amazing dancer. <laughs> and uh, and it's true. He really has moves. He believes in and feels this music, right? And he also, he's not the lyricist. He's the guy, he's, uh, and I'm fascinated by that because I'm a singer-songwriter, right? And he's the guy who's like, yeah, give me the song and I will sell it. I will, I will put it out there. And he's not, he doesn't have a really broad range, but he has a, a, a skill set of putting these lyrics over, which the thing is, on Speak and Spell, they're kind of clever, right? After Speak and Spell, it takes them a long time to really aspire even to the condition of clever. There's some some pretty ham-fisted stuff in the future for old Dave after this record. Uh, you know, I mean, personal Jesus. <laughs> the gigantic global hit, right? But I'm kind of obsessed with how the lyrics... How it's clear that a person who didn't intend to be writing lyrics in Martin Gore is like, well, I got to do that now. Oh, and, and here's, the, here's the other thing. One thing about this record that makes me wish I had made it is the sequence, right? I am absolutely, I can't prove this, right? And I could be wrong because I know record labels in those days often uh, exerted a very strong influence over album sequencing. And to this day, some of them try greater or lesser in my own life. I, I am the guy who decides the sequence. And then people do argue with me about it. And often we come to an agreement. I always want to save stuff for the back nine, right? I want, I want something on side two to, to pop so hard, right? That, uh, that people go, wow, you really had a lot of faith in your record to, to not put that one in the first four, because most people never hear any songs after the fourth song on an album. You're going to hear the first four and you won't dig any further. Well, Depeche Mode saves Dreaming of Me, an utter masterpiece, one of the best songs in the record, two or three best songs, for the last one. I mean, that's like the greatest, most visionary thing to me, to, to put Dreaming of Me, such a catchy, amazing little tune, and, and to save it all the way for the end. Just incredible. That's the other thing is like, they made this record knowing full well that nobody was going to know what to do with them. You know, it's like the the how to present a band like this is uh, isn't something that the industry is ready to really do. even imagine having that kind of confidence in what you're making you're, you're possibly the only album you get to make Poss every every time you make your first album the one time you make your first album there is a strong possibility that that is the last the world will ever hear of you right but i guess it speaks to why you would say well then i'm going to sequence it the way i like instead of worrying about what other people want So the first time I heard the record is a long story. 
And I'm certain I heard some of the hits from it in high school. I know that I did. Just Can't Get Enough was everywhere. Um, I probably would have heard New Life and um, uh, Dreaming of Me. But I didn't actually hear the record itself until many years later when we were making a record in Nashville. I want to ride the hydraulics Lit up like the North Star but, but what happened was this. In 2016 or 17, I'm in Nashville at a studio called Blackbird. If you've never been to Blackbird or seen pictures of it, they, they have multiple studios. They have every microphone you've ever wanted to see, and they have 12 copies of every one. But yeah, I mean, they just have everything. An amazing, very comprehensive studio. And one thing they have is a mixing room, uh, a 5.1 mixing room. If people don't know what this is, this is where you mix for Dolby, right? You mix for, for movies. And... On day five or six of our session, there are one of the engineers, and I hope I'm not talking out of school because I'm not sure if he was supposed to do this or not, says, hey, if you guys are done for the night, if you wanted to go listen to music in the 5.1 room, you know, you, you seldom get the opportunity to hear music in that state. And so we went in there and we listened to Gold Dust Woman, right, uh, which is, you know, legendary feat of engineering. And also... The person who had been remixing Michael Jackson's Thriller had been doing that work when Jackson died. So I had this great experience of listening to that and a thing or two more in the 5.1 room. And I said, well, when we go back, I'm going to buy some 5.1 stuff so I can listen to it in that room when we go back, right? And I got the Pretenders and I got um, Hollow Notes and I got Depeche Mode because it was one of the ones that was there. I said, oh, that probably will sound really cool, right? And it did. But the thing that happened was... When I came home, my son Roman, who uh, was probably five at the time, right? He's a music fiend. He loves to listen to music and get super into it and, uh, and ask questions about it and stuff. So I threw it into the stereo and it just, bang, it resounded with him profoundly to a point where it was all he wanted to hear every single day. So I wind up hearing Speak and Spell every day for about three months, right? And I got really interested. I was like, you know, I never really had, had dug into this music. And these are really good hooks. And, uh, and so I got real curious. And so did Roman, right? And this is an ongoing project with us as we're going through the discography. So yeah, so that was that's my experience with it is like through the accident of wanting to listen to something in 5.1 and then of my son getting to the record, I became fascinated by it. The question on the table is whether I am in fact a Depeche Mode fan. And it's a complicated question because, I mean, I would say, yes, I am. But I come at it from a sideways angle because, you know, I'm pretty critical of other lyricists. Uh, and I don't think that's strictly territorial. I think what I do is kind of in a, you know, a singer-songwriter-poet mode, right? Whereas, as I say, 
when Gore's learning to write lyrics, you can hear him learning on the fly. It's like he's figuring out how to do this thing that wasn't what he was planning on doing when he took the gig, right? And so there's a lot of fairly ham-fisted stuff that goes on. And, uh, you know, but but for me, the, the humanity of it, and there's an irony in this, because synth pop, when it was new, the knock on it from all the rock people was like, oh, it's the music played by robots. There's no soul in it. These sorts of very phoned in. And if you scratch them, they're actually... There's a lot, often a lot of homophobia underneath it or stuff like that. The music isn't hard enough or whatever, you know. But there were all these rock reaction to the to the rise of the synthesizer. It was, it was, and this was a very prevalent discourse. And one of them was that it was cold music. I used to always hear people use it. They still use these in criticism. Cold, icy, glacial, all these sorts of words to describe synthesizers. These are meaningless words. I was like, when somebody uses glacial to describe anything but the tempo, like, my radar goes up. It's like, what are you really talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, uh, and it did take them a while to uh, to manage to, to put it across. It was like it was a pretty pretty uh, gutsy thing to do in those days to to make a record that was like no, we don't have a drummer. Um, there are no guitar solos. You know, it sits in its own pocket that way. And also the thing is melodically, Clark, that guy, <laughs> that guy's really good. So it's because it's the boldness I'm talking about in Depeche Mode of, of saying, well, look, we're going to be a, a pop band with just synthesizers. That's enviable. You know, I know it's brave because of my own reaction to it when I was a kid. I was like, what are you even kidding? Where's your guitarist? This is garbage. You know? so it's like, and, uh, and everything's sort of in the middle. Nobody really raises their voice as much. And it, the 808s, hand claps and stuff, this was not my thing at all. And uh, it was really brave. John Darnielle on The Thing He Wishes He Made, Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode. John's third novel is out now. It's called Devil House. Honestly, it is kind of outrageous that he is so gifted a songwriter and so gifted a novelist. It really bothers me, to be honest. He's a nice guy, too. And I look, I'm not the only one who says these things. Everybody says it about John Darnielle. John's setting out on a book tour right now. We'll have a link to dates on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I was lucky enough to get a visit from uh, the head honcho over there at York Lock and Key. He was nice enough to rebuild the barrel lock on my treasure cabinet. He said he needed to uh, machine a new hook, barb, maybe? He couldn't get parts for the lock, and he couldn't get a one-to-one replacement. Anyway, the best part was, at the end, he said, Ah, thanks for having me do this. It was really fun. He's a nice guy. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by The Go Team. 
thanks to the Go team and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. I know you've probably heard me say that a thousand times, but man, the Go team are so great. Go check out their records. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.